Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 3 of What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Katie Jacobs from the CIPD, and this episode I'm doing some quiet quitting, taking part in the Great Rethink and pondering the question, what if no one was an employee? While that might at first sound a bit extreme, the rise of the gig and freelance economy is something that work futurists and trend spotters have been predicting for quite some time. In Deloitte's 2019 Human Capital Trends Report, the firm wrote that the alternative workforce, that's contract, freelance and gig workers to you and me, had gone mainstream, with a third of respondents to the study reporting they were using alternative arrangements for IT staff and a quarter for operations. And that was before the pandemic, which has, if a slew of media headlines and studies are to be believed, led to a profound shift in how people think about work and how it fits into their lives. A record number of Americans have quit their jobs since 2021 in the so-called Great Resignation. And according to a 2021 research report by freelance platform Upwork, more than a third of the entire US workforce, that's 59 million people, said they had performed some kind of freelance work in the past 12 months. The platform also found that 56% of non-freelancers said they were planning to take on some freelance work in the coming months. While Upwork obviously has some considerable skin in the freelance game, it is clear that the narrative around work and its role in our lives is changing, with flexibility becoming ever more important to people. And with the UK government currently considering what some are referring to as a bonfire of employment rights via the retained EU law bill, in some markets, being employed could, in future, no longer be the surefire route to rights and benefits that it's cracked up to be. So with all that context in mind, is it really so far-fetched to imagine a world without permanent employment, where every worker is a self-employed contractor bouncing from gig to gig? And if that was the case, what would it mean for the working world? Would we descend into some kind of dystopian hellscape, all competing for likes and five-star ratings in a dispiriting race to the bottom? Or would we see something more positive, with people free to flex their work around their lives, guided by their purpose and interests? And what would a world with less traditional employment mean for business models and for HR? To debate these questions, I spoke to two US-based experts on the world of work. Peter Capelli is George W. Professor of Management at the Wharton School and Director of Wharton's Centre for Human Resources. And I spoke to Harvard Business School Professor and best-selling writer Ranjay Gulati, author of the book Deep Purpose, The Heart and Soul of High Performance Companies. I started by asking them both to shine a light on the reality of the labour market when it comes to freelance and gig workers. Is this really a growing and disruptive trend or something that has been overhyped by a media looking for stories and consultants looking for new products and ideas to sell? Where are we seeing more gig work and why does it at least feel like it's on the rise? Peter first. The rise of what we call the gig economy, it's a little misnomer, I think, but independent contractors got more attention. Actually, the percentage of independent contractors, at least by most of the official measures in the U.S., has not changed. But there's a sense that something must be a little funny because we hear so much about it. But the other big development in the U.S. has been contract work through agencies. So the people who do that are not 
themselves contractors, but they are working for a vendor of some kind, a staffing company, which then leases them, the U.S. expression for this is leasing them, to an employer. That's been probably the biggest change. And with that decline of a whole bunch of other things around compensation and benefits that were all designed to pay attention to internal equity and retain people and all those things. The real reason there might be something to it is that we're starting to see it in all kinds of places where we didn't see before. I think it used to be much more of a blue collar thing. And now you see it in professions, right? So we see new platforms like Upwork, which is not really new. It's a combination of two previous platforms. But what you can do there, of course, is you can bid for contractors and their work and things. Now, it's not a new thing that's been around for at least 20 years or so, but it's getting perhaps more attention. And Uber, which got a huge amount of attention. And there's a belief that there are millions of people who are Uber drivers. It turns out that's not true. There are more than a million people who have signed up to be Uber drivers. But if you look at how many actually drive, it's a pretty small number. So I think the reason it got a lot of attention is these new electronic platforms didn't exist before. And you're starting to see it in jobs where we didn't see it in the 1970s or 80s before. Here's Ranjay. You know, there was a book that came out in the 50s or 60s called The Organization Man. Unfortunately, it was just men back then, most of them, right? But the idea was there was this kind of conformity model that you were kind of a lifer in an organization, you worked there. We evolved into then, say, having a career across organizations, but full-time. Now we have remote work, part-time work, flex work, gig work. I think we have to be more expansive in our thinking about creating employment opportunities for a range of people with a range of aspirations and a range of constraints. So the way that organisations work with individuals has evolved, with a range of new employment relationships emerging. But, as Peter says... The noise around the rise of gig work is just that. Noise without a significant basis in evidence. So what, I wondered, about the impact of the pandemic? Has it really driven a change in the relationship between employees and employers and how people think about work and their lives? Or has this been overblown by an eager media as well? As you'll hear, Ranjay and Peter differ in their opinion here. Let's hear from Ranjay first. When you confront death, mortality, isolation. I mean, there's a lot of rethinking going on. And to me, I was shocked when people were describing it as a resignation and not even asking the question of there's a rethink going on here. In my mind, the rethink is really positive. And the positive aspects of the rethink are that we expect more out of our lives, more broadly, and we expect more out of our work, right? I don't want to just do a grunt job that is a low-paying job that's a dead end. I want to do something that gives me something more. I think the only thing that really seems to be still hanging out there is this issue of remote work. And, you know, it could really be a transformational thing. Certainly the most dramatic change I've seen in my lifetime, frankly, around work issues. And also because, of course, it happened all at once. I don't see anything fundamentally rewiring people's heads except the tight labor market, which has caused expectations to go up a lot from people. And whether they will come down quickly depends on whether we are heading into a recession or not. Past is any indicator. If we hit a recession, expectations adjust very quickly. One trend Peter has noticed, however, and one which makes him slightly uneasy, 
is employment itself becoming more like contracting, shifting the employment relationship to something more arm's length and less paternalistic, as he explains. So a colleague and I wrote a paper this that's just come out where we outlined this, all the different ways in which employment is already becoming more like contracting. So nothing prevents you from treating your employees more like contractors, but the law prevents you from treating your contractors more like employees. And what we're seeing in the U.S. now is even employment is becoming more arm's length. Lots of contracts, we call them restrictive covenants here on uh, non-compete agreements and those things, right? Um, Those are quite widespread along with non-disclosure agreements, which are being more, much more widely enforced now, even preventing you from talking about your employer, because the claim is that this is stuff that you would not have known if you were not an employee, and therefore it's kind of privileged. So we're seeing just an incredible amount of widespread use of more arms-length relationships, even with employees. Is that the right way to go? Or would we be better off treating contractors more like employees, or at least thinking along some of the same lines. While legislation like IR35 in the UK means organisations need to tread carefully around their engagement of and relationship with contractors, and Peter raises similar legal issues in the US, are there, nonetheless, some good people practices that should apply to everyone, no matter their relationship with the organisation? Ranjay certainly believes that when it comes to the consideration of essential factors like purpose, meaning and human connection, thinking more deeply around the working experience of contractors and gig workers would be a win-win for everyone. I think everyone needs to understand why are we here. And I think what happens sometimes with gig economy or contractual workers is we, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You treat them like contractors and they behave like contractors. And you create a very transactional mindset in the interaction. It's a contractual interaction that is primarily contractual and doesn't go anywhere. So I think this is the part that I think we have to kind of ask ourselves that, you know, even when you have somebody on a temporary basis, how they show up, I think it's super helpful for someone to know, like, I want you to understand what we are doing, but why we're doing it. It doesn't take long to explain to somebody why we're doing it. I'm not saying that they should align their life purpose with your organization and all that stuff that you would have with a full-time employee, but at least they should understand, like, let me help you understand why we do what we do. We are deeply animated here by X, and this is our orienting North Star. So in whatever work you're going to do for whatever period of time, I want to just give you that orienting framework. That genuine understanding of an organization's purpose could no doubt help produce better quality work from their entire talent pool, no matter the employment relationship. But when it comes to engaging with more contingent workers, is there an appetite from businesses to think more creatively about what Ranjay would term deep purpose and beyond? Or do most companies use contractors simply to cut costs? In short, why is it that businesses might be attracted by a model that relies more on contingent labour? While Peter is more cynical, Ranjay believes we need to be more open-minded about different sources of labour. Let's hear them out. Peter first. The idea is that you could have a workforce that you could turn on and off like a spigot. Contracting appears to offer that, or if not contracting per se, at least the least employee model where you're contracting with a provider of employees, not your own. So that's what they like about it, is the idea that, boy, we could do this a lot cheaper The reason it is so popular is because the CFOs like it and this idea of a liquid workforce where you could cut the costs seems so appealing. 
people are not all going to be working full time. This is not in a world where everybody is in a full time employment contract with the company. You have part timers, you have freelancers, you have a whole range of people. How do you keep them connected to a common cause? That I think becomes the real question. Ranjay is passionate about helping everyone find their sense of purpose through their work. But is it really realistic or fair to expect too much around the commitment that someone feels to an organisation if they are not an employee? Or is talking about purpose alignment and connection to a common cause simply asking too much? What is the nature of the psychological contract between freelancer or gig workers and their clients? And does it matter? Once again, our experts are slightly at odds. Let's hear from Peter first. You get people who have no commitment to you. You get people who you can't shape in terms of trying to create any kind of behavior that might be particularly unique to you or to have commitment to do a good job when no one's watching, right? You can't do any of that. You can't redirect contractors, you know, if there's nothing for them to do that particular moment or what you ask them to do changes. You have to go back and recontract. I think you could probably have a relationship with individual clients, um, and many people do, which is kind of reciprocal. But underpinning that is a rough and tumble legal contract arm's length thing, right? So you could have a good relationship uh, that is personal and reciprocal and looking out for each other. But as a system-wide practice, I wouldn't bet on it. I advise and work with companies. There are certain organizations where I myself am so inspired by what they're doing. It doesn't mean I'm going to work with them permanently and shut down and stop working with anybody else. But I feel my own performance is elevated when I am interacting with them. As much as I am a professional, I want to do my best job for every interaction I have. But, you know, when we feel inspired, we show up differently. And I think we have to understand that. In a 2015 study, they found inspired workers are more than twice as productive as satisfied workers. So the question is, how can we change the interaction? And I think all of us, or at least most of us, want to experience that sense that what I do matters. Even people who are partaking in a gig economy, you know, and some of us do it spontaneously. I mean, you'll think about an Uber driver. I've had interaction with Uber drivers. I tend to generally talk to them. Some of them are very terse and they want to just drive the car and drop you off and be done. And some passengers, I'm in the mood, I don't want to talk. I'm also busy and working and on the phone or something else. But you should see the interaction some of them have with you. And you can see how they themselves are uplifted and they want to uplift others too. So how we choose to show up impacts not only the work we do, it actually, I think, helps us. It elevates us. So I think sometimes gig work limits our ability to see the cumulative impact we are having on the world beyond us. And I think that's the only limiting factor. And the question is, how can we find that? So how do we create that for ourselves? It could be argued that helping people create that meaning for themselves throughout their working life is part of HR's role, a valuable and purpose-filled one for the profession itself. But beyond that, what would a world with less formal employment mean for HR and people strategy and practice? First up, Peter, who believes that it would naturally leave HR with a lot less work to do, and not necessarily in a good way. This is a fascinating topic, I think, because there are some fundamental differences that very few people seem to know. And I confess that was also true f for me. 
But one of the things that we got from you folks in the U.S. is common law. And employment uh, is a common law creation. It didn't exist before common law. It didn't exist before the 1700s. And basically what we had before then was apprentice systems and master-servant relationships. And even in the U.S. employment law, they still use that phrase master-servant. And it comes, of course, from English common law, right? And what employment looks like is a very, very strange relationship. It has obligations built into it where the employer has duties to the employee and the employee has duties back to the employer. So, for example, there's duty of loyalty, which says, you know, like if you're working for an accounting firm, you can't do accounting work on your own. You can't uh, disparage your employer. Uh, your employer cannot put you in harm's way if it's unnecessary. Uh, this is the duty of care. And the employees have obligations to their employer to look after the employer's interests. None of those things apply with contractors. With contractors in the U.S., the things that you're describing before, you can't do with contractors because we have a whole series of laws that apply strictly to employees. So, for example, you cannot uh, select your contractors based on fit. You can't say, well, this one fits our culture. The only criteria you can use with contractors is can they do the job? You can't train your contractors uh, without turning them into an employee, or at least you move down the path of turning them into an employee. You can't do things like performance appraisals with contractors. It is an arm's length relationship. However, Ranjay believes that shifting employment models mean HR becoming more creative as the profession thinks about how it can build more flexibility into organizational systems, as he explains. Organization have to say, I'm going to lose a talent pool if I don't find a way. I need to build some flex into my human resource systems. You know, we need to understand how humans are changing their aspirations and connection to work. And do we have the kind of employment systems without becoming a free-for-all, but in a very deliberate way saying, here's a possible system we've created that taps into this talent. And I think the challenge, HR is in such a critical role right now. Because, you know, as we are looking at this kind of changing landscape, even in the slowdown context we're in, the one size fits all doesn't work anymore, but complete free for all doesn't work either. So how do I create some kind of structured flexibility? To finish off the debate, I asked our experts to address the central what if of this episode. What if no one was an employee? Here, both Peter and Ranjay are broadly aligned that such a proposition is neither likely nor desirable. So one of the things about employment and particularly employment in larger organizations is that there has been a a lot of kind of smoothing out of the unpleasantness, although employees don't quite believe this, but the employers have been trying, large corporations in particular, to engage in a story of reciprocity with employees, to get them to look after the employer's interests. So we're going to try to do things for you, which makes you feel like you'd like to look out for us. Now, not all employers do this, and even some that did back away from it, but that's kind of the general idea. And some of that is, you know, people who could have made more money elsewhere may make less. People who would have made less money elsewhere probably make a little more. People with 
various benefits are kind of taken care of if things go awry, you know, pensions, death benefits, that, that sort of stuff. When all that stuff goes away, if we don't have em- employment, then I imagine what you see is much greater inequality because people have to deal with all that stuff themselves under a contracting model. Most people probably not so good at those things, and they're likely to get tripped up in all kinds of ways. So one of the things we'll see, I'm sure, is much greater inequality. The busy people will be even busier and even wealthier, and the people who are not well organized, don't have good executive skills, don't have marketable skills, they're going to be much worse off than before. So one of the things that would probably mean is that there's much greater pressure on the government to take over some of those problems that employers one way or the other were trying to soften to get commitment and engagement from employees. So for most people, it's probably it's hard to imagine this being a nice thing. Organizations need to embrace the idea that some percentage of their people will want this kind of more fluid relationship with their employer. And how do you make it meaningful and worthwhile for them while you also do it for the others who are full time and want to be part of the organization? So I think there's a whole spectrum of people out there. I don't think we're going to go into a world where there is no structure and everybody is in a kind of a gig work in some way. That was the projection at one point in time. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think some percentage of people are going to want that kind of lifestyle. The question of how do you tap into that talent pool? So we are unlikely to ever enter a world where employment contracts become a thing of the past. And if Peter is to be believed, that is certainly something to be thankful for. But while predictions about the rise in the gig and freelance economy may be somewhat overblown... The fact is that many people are looking for more flexibility and a different way of working. For some, that can be met within the confines of a more traditional employment relationship, while others may choose to go it alone. But whatever the working relationship looks like, it's keeping good work and job quality at the heart of it that counts. You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.